This message is part of the teaching provided by House on the Rock Fellowship, a church caring for the Miami Valley region. Before you listen, be sure to access the notes in the download section of the message page. Have a Bible ready. Thank you for being our guest. I began to clear the brush away from our backyard. Stack there for a while. Didn't find a snake, didn't find a snake. I sensed him. There's a, you know, a spiritual sense because I am a holy man of God. I can sense snakes, okay? When the evil is about. That's complete crock. They don't believe any of that. But, uh, but I still knew. I knew that this was going to happen. I knew it. And so I get to the wood pile, and I know as soon as I pick up tarp, there's going to be a snake sitting there on the log. And nothing crazy. It's a garter snake. Nothing's going to be terrible. But I know it's there. I know. I can feel it. I'm like, I know it's going to happen. So I don't need to freak out. There's probably neighbors watching. I don't need to make a scene. I pull back the tarp. And there he was just waking up. You know, I pulled back the, the covers on him. It was early in the morning. He wasn't ready for it. I apologized. He looked, and then he kind of went his way, and I could go about my way. I knew the snake was going to be there. It was the second one that got me. <laughs> because she had woken up earlier and had three pots of coffee and then gone back to bed and was planning to sleep soundly. So when I pulled back the covers, Mr. Snake was like, oh, okay, time to go. She was like, mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. She was coiled and she was jittered and she was juiced and she jumped and I jumped. She slithered off. I changed my shorts. <laughs> It was the first one, I was okay. I knew what to expect, I expected. I expected that. And then that happened. And that's the one that got my heart. That's the one that got my legs. That's the one that got my shorts. That's, that was the one that changed. I wasn't expecting that encounter. Is it possible that we approach Jesus expecting this? Only to find out there's a whole lot more. And it will get your heart. It will shake you to your knees. It will startle and it will surprise. But for most of us, is it possible that our view of Jesus is this? And the mystery of Jesus is really that. It's my prayer this morning, whether you're here, or you're watching online, that Jesus startles you just a little bit today. You thought that you were going to find this. And Jesus goes, hey, to help us in this journey. The Holy Spirit kind of drew my attention to something that I hadn't considered much. 
When you think of Jesus, you think of the sacrifice of our Lord. You think of the grace. You think of the mercy. Your imagination, you can see him carry the mighty cross and the timbers up the hill of Golgotha. You can imagine them and see them piercing his hands, his feet, his side. You see that moment. A Christian should regularly see that moment and be confronted with that moment. But have you really thought about this and what this might say? Maybe like me, you've just kind of taken the crown of thorns and for lack of a better term, theological window dressing. It's just kind of part of the costume. When Jesus goes up there, he's got a crown on because Jesus wears a crown of thorns. But have you really thought about it? Have you really looked at it and considered it? What does this say about Jesus. In John 19, the first couple verses, it, it has this to say. I'd like to read it for you. John 19, 1 to 3. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. Scourge, whip, that's what that means. Soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. So much of the crucifixion is beyond our imagination. It's way outside of our culture. People don't get crucified like that. We don't encounter that. It's hard to imagine being nailed, hands and feet, pierced in the side. It's hard to grasp it, but I've pricked my finger on a thorn, right? There's a tangibleness here that I, I can get a little bit closer to. You go to, you know, to cut a rose and it rose bites back. You're clearing out some brush and you'll get all nicked up. So to imagine, there's a little bit more tactile tangibility about the fact of imagining and knowing the feeling of someone taking this and shoving it down on my head. That makes it a little bit closer. And it makes me wonder, who receives this? Write that down in your notes. Who receives a crown of thorns? What does it say of the person, of the individual? Knowing kind of what you know about Jesus, maybe, and all that's going on. I mean, the Roman soldiers had no idea what they were doing as they put this upon. So what does it say about our Jesus that he received this from mocking soldiers? And what does it teach us today about the one we call Lord? To help us, we're going to look at Psalm 110. 
not your favorite go-to psalm. Uh, we're thankful Sarah read it, read it very well, worked the way through the hard words, got Melchizedek out there. But when you think of great psalms, you're not thinking Psalm 110. Most people, if you ask them, hey, what's your favorite psalm? They'll probably maybe, if they luck out, look on their coffee cup or imagine what they have on their wall, and they'll start going through what? The Lord is my shepherd. I don't want stuff because he lies me in grass. That's, that's my favorite psalm. That's the one I like. I like that one. I like the shepherd Jesus. I like this lay me down and pet my neck Jesus. I like that Jesus. He's loving and he's kind and he's good. I like that Jesus. Not real sure about the Melchizedek king slaying corpse laying out, body wiping out kind of Jesus. That, that one doesn't connect with me. Psalm 23 isn't what the apostles and the writers quoted all throughout the New Testament, though. The most quoted, the most referenced psalm in the New Testament is Psalm 110. When the apostles thought of Jesus, when they saw Jesus, when they remembered Jesus coming out of Jerusalem and going up the hill of Golgotha with the crown upon his head and the cross on his back, it was Psalm 110 singing in their imagination. It's Psalm 110 that frames and shapes their understanding of what Jesus did, of who Jesus was. The book of Hebrews, Psalm 110. The book of Revelation, Psalm 110. Paul cites Psalm 110. Jesus brings Psalm 110 to the Pharisees. Not the Lord is my shepherd, but something about a guy named Melchizedek. So maybe whatever our view of Jesus is, he can help it grow a little bit this morning. Let me read it for you again. Psalm 110, would you stand with me as I read it? If you're online, you stand up too. I don't care if you got your jammies on or not. Psalm 110, just out of respect. May the Holy Spirit wash these words over us. Press us into a deeper understanding. The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. And all God's people said, amen. Be seated. Let's see if we can't understand this together. In your notes, we're going to make some observations as we work through this psalm, a little bit verse by verse. But what does it tell me about the one who receives a crown, a crown of thorns? 
Well, Psalm 110 tells us from the beginning, the one who is God. Let's write that down. It's the one who is God. The Lord says to my Lord. I want you to open up your copy of God's word. I want you to look at that verse. See if you can't look at the typeface. Look at the font. Does the first Lord look a little bit different than the second Lord? In a lot of translations, the first Lord will be capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's the American translator's way of referring to Yahweh, the covenant name of God. To say Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, is to say Lord, the mighty God, the one who met with Moses on the mountain, the God of Israel, the relationship covenant-making God, God's name, the great I Am. That's the first Lord. The second Lord is the word for king. The mighty God says to my king, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool. Here's the interesting thing. It's the king of Israel who's writing and saying this. So the king is saying, the Lord says to my king, what's David thinking? What's David understanding? God had made him a promise. Someone from your line, your heir, will be king forever. David thinks upon this and meditates upon this and reflects upon this and sees the wonder working of God. And as he meditates upon God's promises, he understands that this has to be a greater than me king. This has to be a divine king, a beyond me type of king. The one is God. It's this verse that Jesus uses to confuse the Pharisees in the temple before his death. They start asking him questions and asking him questions. I got a question for you. Three of the gospel writers cite this verse. And Jesus says, hey, when David says, Lord, my Lord, who's he referring to? Who's David talking about? What did David see that the Pharisees were blinded to? This one is God. This one is God. This verse is talking about someone who is greater. The one who is king. Write that down. The one who is God and the one who is king. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Notice that word footstool in verse 1. And then in verse 2, the Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Notice the word scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. If I were teaching you chess, let's say you liked checkers and you, that you thought that was cool and then you watched a cool series on Netflix and it had chess in it, you say, I want to learn some chess. Well, teach me some chess. Pause, I'll teach you some chess. So I'm going to walk you through the pieces. These are pawns. This is what they can do. See the little castles? This is what they do. I bet you I could ask you, which one do you think is the king? And you could probably guess. You'd look at it and say, it's probably the tall one with the crown, right? Because who wears the crown? It's the king. This is king language. Footstool and scepter. Thrones were vaulted chairs. Because the king sat higher than everybody else. His head was higher. And he would often have a footstool that he'd rest his feet on. How I many of you have a footstool at home? So if you have a footstool, how many of you think you're a king? Cool. Awesome. 
The footstool also symbolically is a picture of a king's dominion, those who are under his feet. If you look at the footstools that have been dug up if by archaeology, the ancient kings, you'll see scribed into the footstools the names of nations and the names of other kings that they had subjugated or defeated in war. So that when you come before the king, you can see his feet are on top of Egypt. His feet are on Syria. His feet are on Damascus. His feet are on. He has dominion over. This king has dominion over his enemies. They don't conquer him. He conquers them. His scepter goes forth from Zion. What does that mean? In a prophetic moment, David sees this king. If he's to be a king forever, then his rule and authority will go forth from Zion. Zion's the holy city, the holy hill of Jerusalem. And going forth from Jerusalem, surrounded by enemies, his rule reigns. Everything submits because he is the one who is king He's God, he's king. Also, he's the one who is holy. Write down holy. Verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. Lots of imagery here. Uh, your people, these are his followers. The king has followers. These followers are loyal to him. They freely give themselves to him. That's what faith is. Faith isn't a holy bus ticket. Faith means believing loyalty. If you were to say that Jesus is your king, that means you loyally follow him. If Jesus says this, you do that. If Jesus says that, you do that. Someone else is your king, you know that because you're loyal to him. These followers are loyal your day means the time and the era of your rule. They are covered in, in otherness, otherness garments, holy garments, because their king is a holy king. Like an army marching forth, bearing the banner and the colors of their king. They too wear holy garments. And they are like the dew you can imagine as the sun rises in the morning and the, the beams of light catch the, the little drops of dew across a field and it glistens and it shines the whole field. So it would be like to look out upon these shining regal holy ones, all the followers of the king in bright array because he is holy. One who is God, one who is king, one who is holy. To say holy garments is like say one who is like a priest. Priestly ones. The one who is priest. Let's write that down. Verse 4. The Lord sworn and will not change his mind. And the Lord has chiseled it in stone. The Lord has written it down for time eternal. The Lord will not repent. The Lord will not come back on it. This is as eternal as you can imagine eternal. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the most quoted verse in the New Testament. Like, really? Really? 
Not like one of the shepherdy, lovey ones. Surely that's got to be in the. This is the most referenced, quoted verse in your New Testament. If you're going to put together a summer mixtape of the Bible's greatest hits, and you're going to take the Bible's voice seriously and the voices of the apostles seriously, this is what they say is the number one hit. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The writer of Hebrews bases his whole book upon this central idea. Chapter 7 of the book of Hebrews is all a theological opening up of this promise. There's something about what David said. One who is coming, he's not just a king, but he's a priest too. Why is that significant? Why is that a big deal? Well, because when David is writing, the king and the priest are two different people. The roles are separated. So who is Melchizedek? Apparently, it's such a big deal. Who is Melchizedek? You got to go to Genesis 14. Let me give you the broad strokes. Abraham is coming back after waging a whole lot of war because Lot, family member, got himself in trouble, and Abraham had to go take care of it. Abraham goes, there's war, and there's plunder, and Abraham is coming back with a whole lot of plunder back to his home camp. On the way back to camp, he's surrounded by all the local kings and power mongers trying to get Abraham to give allegiance to them, trying to share some of the bounty and share some of all the spoils of war. And Abraham's pretty annoyed about it. But then he goes by Salem, what we call Jerusalem. And a king comes out. And his name was Melchizedek. And the Bible tells us he was priest of the Most High. He gives a blessing to Abraham. A feast for Abraham. Abraham gives a tithe of all of his bounty to Melchizedek. And Melchizedek gives a blessing over Abraham. Abraham goes on his way. And that's the end of Melchizedek's story. Two verses. That's it. That's it. The most quoted, most cited, most referenced verse in the New Testament has to do with a king who had two verses in the Old Testament. He shows up out of nowhere, he goes away into nowhere, and he's surrounded by mystery. But he's this figure who is both a king and a priest. He embodies both, and a priest of the Most High. Somehow, some way, he knew Yahweh. He knew the promise of God, and he taught those promises to his people. That's what a priest does, right? A priest bridges the gap. A priest helps us connect to God. A priest helps us understand what worship and holiness is, and he was this to his people in a small town called Jerusalem. And he comes forth from Jerusalem, this priest king, and he gives a blessing to Abraham. And Abraham gives a tithe and awe and respect back to this king. So what does this have to do in Psalm 110 with helping me understand my Jesus? Because there's something about this figure that David's talking about. He's going to be like Melchizedek. Put the pieces together. We have someone, priest and king, who comes out of Jerusalem 
to bring a blessing to Israel. He comes out of Jerusalem surrounded by his enemies. He comes out of Jerusalem a king and priest of the Most High. Maybe your view of Jesus just got a little bit bigger. The one who is God, the one who is king, the one who is holy, the one who is priest, righteous, priest, bringing judgment against his enemies, because that's what he does. The one who judges. Write this down. The one who judges. Verse 5 and 6. The Lord is at your right hand. He'll shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. The priest kings over all others. And like a king, there is a day of judgment, a day of wrath. Why is there judgment? Why does he judge? There must be law for there to be order, for there to be peace, for there to be safety and security. There has to be order. And a good king brings order. And to those who will oppose that order, who will oppose his peace, and those who will bring threat and death against his people, he brings judgment. And there is a day of judgment. Those who are unallegiant to, those who are not loyal to, those who have chosen other, there is a day coming when the priest king will bring a day of wrath against his enemies. A year ago, I was on my back porch working my way through the book of Revelation because someone had sprinkled in my head that that would be a good idea. Let's go through the book of Revelation. The whole world's falling apart. Let's see what happens next. Sure, why not? And I'm laboring through the book of Revelation. Is this not the book of Revelation? The book of Revelation, the kaleidoscope turned and turned and turned as John took the promise of this psalm in psychedelic, ultra-high-definition color and showed us picture after picture after picture of the one who is lion and lamb, the one who is priest and king and brings judgment against evil, the propaganda machines of death, the emperors of sin and all the harlotry that comes along with it. John the Divine taking the promise here in Psalm 110 and Psalm 2 and delivering it in psychedelic color for, for followers all around the Mediterranean saying, hold on. The king is coming, the king is coming, the king is coming. The priest king who is the lion, who is the lamb, who is the sacrifice, he will bring judgment against. Hold on, hold on, hold on. The day of his wrath will come. And so for those of us who look to that king, it's great hope. But to those who have not chosen to follow that king, there's a great warning. Live rightly. 
the priest king will judge and he will be victorious. Let's write that down. The one who is victorious. Verse 7. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. He's not overwhelmed by his task. He is refreshed in it. He doesn't fail in it. He holds his head high. He conquers his enemies. He's not wearied by war. His head is up. Shakespeare's great line, uneasy hangs the head that wears the crown. You guys ever heard that phrase before? Uneasy hangs the head that wears the crown. Talking about the great weight and responsibility that comes with leadership. The head hangs heavy. But our king holds his head high. Because he is victorious. And even though surrounded by enemies and surrounded by accusers and mockers and what looks to be in tremendous mystery, his defeat turns out to be our great success. With the crown of thorns, he defeats sin and death. And three days later, rises again and held his head high. Don't do what we could be tempted to do as you look at the crown of thorns. The temptation is to come up and break the thorns off because that's the kind of crown that we want. That's the kind of crown that we like. That's the kind of Jesus we think that we're following. That's the type of Christianity we think that we've chosen to buy into. It's a crown without any thorns. It's an easy crown. It's a light crown. Like the crown you get at Burger King. Do you remember going to Burger King and getting crowns? Come on, that was it. That was awesome. I mean, because they'd have them stacked up. And it was, and there was this some little, you know, just teenager just wrapping and stacking crowns. Like, I want that crown. And you could take it off. It was a very light crown. And you could make it fit nice and comfy so your ears didn't bow out. And you, you wore that crown. Man, you wear that crown all over the place. Man, I like, I got my crown. I like, my, I like this crown. It's a comfy crown. It's a good crown. It's a lightweight crown. But this crown comes with thorns. Following our king comes with thorns. So don't be tempted to break the thorns off and make Christianity into something that it's not, but makes it more palatable and swallowable for you or for your neighbor where you come and get a bus ticket to go to the happy place. The writer of Hebrews and the writer of John would have spit their coffee out all over you. Are you serious? You think that what this is about? As the victorious king has this thrust upon his head with the cross upon his shoulders and walks his way up the hill? You think it's a Burger King crown? That's what you've signed up for? We don't follow the eagle. It's a dove. And it is sacrificed. Or don't, don't be tempted to do this. You may not be tempted to, 
take the thorns off the crown, but you will take the crown out of Jesus' hands. I like Savior Jesus. I like Shepherd Jesus. I like the Jesus that pets my neck, not the Jesus that cracks my back because sometimes I need that. I want to be king. I'm king. I'm king. Sure, Sunday morning, if it works out and I can wake up, I'll make it, and I'll sing some songs, and I'll sing the songs that I like because the worship music's for me. It's music that I enjoy. And if the church changes the music, I'll just go find a better restaurant because I wear the crown because I'm the king. Or let's not do this. Let's not set down the holy robes of being a Jesus follower and put on the uniform of a Roman soldier and live a life that is a mockery to the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. Our lives are called to conform to the rule and reign of his kingdom. So would you come in here and say, all hail the king, and our life does something completely different in how we act and how we live and how we spend and who we sleep with and what we eat and what we do, mocking the head that wears the crown. Look upon the crown. I think it invites us to reflect. David had some amazing wisdom, the one who was king, to say that, yeah, I might be king, but I'm not the king. David knew that the world did not rotate around him. And he looked to the time where one would come who would defeat all of his enemies and would conquer all that resist and opposed his people. So David invites us. Do I follow him? Do I follow the king who receives a crown of thorns? Do I follow him in holiness? Does my ref life reflect his kingdom come? Would someone look at Jesus wearing the crown of thorns and look at my life and say, yes, that makes sense. That makes sense. I don't get it, but that makes sense. Has this type of king priest come to my home? Does he have rule and reign over my family? Or is it just a token crown where we've broken off the thorns? Do we model for our children what it means to hold that Jesus up high? He conquered sin and death. Are they present in my life? Have they taken root in my life? Am I giving those areas over to him? Because he is conquered. He is ruled. He is reigned. 
I can come before my king and I can receive forgiveness and healing and wholeness. Come face to face with Jesus as he is and not how our culture paints him to be. This is the Bible's number one hit. It's on your mixtape. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we'd love for the journey to continue. If you're a guest, would you consider reaching out to us? We would love to come alongside and encourage you in any way that we can. If you're someone who's joined us today, and you are desperately reaching to find hope wherever you can. Again, Jesus came that we would find hope. You can find hope today. If you want to send us a short note, a member of our hope team would reach out quickly, promptly, to come alongside and see what we can do to encourage you in whatever storm you might find yourself in. That's why Jesus came. That's why we're here. Jesus said there's two ways to live your life. And a wise man, a wise woman, builds their life on Jesus' instructions.